You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Plato's Cave on 3RRR, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Sally Christie, and joining me tonight, we have the wonderful minds of Cerise Howard, Stuart Richards, and Emma Westwood. Now, although last week was International Women's Day, tonight on Plato's Cave, we're going to be focusing on three documentaries about three very different women that have demonstrated their enormous impact on the world. So first up, we uh, later we will be discussing Marco Di Fioli's documentary about Mariana Abramovic um, in Brazil, The Space in Between, following the renowned performance artist as she travels through Brazil in search for healing and artistic inspiration. We will also be looking at the incredible story of silver screen star and inventor Hedy Lamarr in Alexandra Dean's bombshell, The Hedy Lamarr Story which pays tribute not only to her importance in screen history, but also gives credit to her brilliant mind and the impact of her contribution to modern technology. But first, we are going to be discussing, discussing sorry, Sophie Fine's doco, Blood, Light and Bammy, about none other than the divine Miss Grace Jones, which is very exciting. So with this one... Forget traditional documentary formats. For someone as unconventional as Jones, um, Sophie Fines turns an artistically rendered observational chronicle of an artist that's in her 60s, but still at the top of her game. Visually visceral, musically rich, and starring a candid Grace Jones as you have never seen her before. Bloodlight and Bambi takes the viewer on an electrifying journey that moves between four cinematic layers, performance, family, artist and gypsy to explore the fascinating world of this cultural phenomenon that is Grace Jones. So whether she's in the studio with Sly and Robbie or on stage performing classics like Pull Up to the Bumper and Slave to the Rhythm or with her extended family in Jamaica picking over memories of of a childhood haunted by the patriarchal zealot recounted in her William's blood, Throughout this film, Grace Jones is larger than life. At times it's funny, far-sighted, tender, terrifying and captivating. Alongside a panorama of incredible outfits, we're all supposed to spend time with Miss Jones as she steps out from behind the fabric of her stunning masks, seeing her as a daughter, a mother, a sister and a grandmother. So, what do we all think about Bloodlight and Bammy? Well, I have a confession to make, and that is I came into this documentary not knowing a lot about Grace Jones. I knew some of her music. I knew she was May Day. I knew she slapped the interviewer in the 80s. Um, (laughs) So I had the basics covered, but I I was quite lost with this documentary, I think. Um, I would have liked, I guess, more context, just some form of guidance as it went from various concerts to Jamaica and the people she was meeting in Jamaica, which I knew were her family, but it did take me a while to figure out sort of the exact relationship dynamics. That's a good point. I actually would like to ask you, Stuart, not knowing about anything about Grace Jones, what did you take from this documentary about Grace Jones? I, I mean, I got her fierceness. The the final one of the final scenes when she's in the hotel in Paris having the champagne breakfast in nothing but a fur coat. Uh, 
I and loved that. And a bit of a boob, a bit and of a bit tit of a, going out a bit occasionally. Of a boob. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I loved that, and I got her fierceness, and I really loved all these intense, intimate conversations she was having um, with sort of various people around her. But a lot of the time, I was quite lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was. It, I thought the documentary was very interesting from the point of view. First of all, that Sophie Fines was the director, and she comes from a very prominent visual family. Yet she was totally absent, really, as a director in this. You didn't hear her speak, and you didn't see any sort of screen presence with her. Um, the sound mix, the way it worked, well, because it was sort of fly on the walls, up fly on the wall style. Um, Grace and the family talking, it was difficult to pick up things. I know what you mean. And especially when you have a Jamaican family. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, I remember watching something like How Did They Come for the first time and that film, the Jamaican accents, just because it's so thick, it takes a long time to be able to get into the rhythm of the language. And this presents some really interesting stuff about the Jones, which is her father's side of the family, and the Williams, her mother's side of the family dynamic right at the start and you can easily miss it. So I think it's a very, there's a little bit of an assumption that comes with this film that you really sort of know Grace Jones already and it's just painting, it's it's bringing in some extra details but it's to the fans. It feels like it's really to the fans. Yeah, it's not for the uninitiated at all. Yeah, put it that way, yeah. I'm not sure if there is a, a real assumption that people do know that much about her. I just think it's just possibly an indifference to whether the audience <laughs> knows that much about her. Um, she does kind of hide in plain sight, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did learn some really interesting things about how her presence was formed, how her this phenomenal, androgynous, fierce... Um, uh, persona was formed that she actually took a lot from this tyrannical uh, patriarchal figure known throughout as uh, was it Mass P. Mass P. You know, Mass yeah. P and Master Patrick. Um, that was really incredible, I must say. That was I was lost for a lot of the documentary, but that moment when she's talking about how her stage presence was formed was really, really incredible. Yeah, that a lot of the shapes she throws on stage and in uh, other manifestations and modelling uh, in those incredible video clips she, she mm. made with um, her collaborator and one-time partner, who we see a little bit of in, late in the film, Jean-Paul Gold. Um, that persona, a lot of it, yeah, drew on on trauma, really, mm. I think. And uh, that, that was quite um, eye-opening for me. She's in her late sixties throughout this film, and who would know? Oh she is, she's she's incredible. Just absolutely incredible. Yeah, she's so formidable yeah. and um, whip smart, suffering no fools, let alone gladly. Um, <laughs> it's just a, it, it's a it's weird mosaic sort of a, a form to the documentary. This and some of her directorial choices. Uh, Sophie Fiennes' choices are curious. She sometimes just throws her camera at weird ancillary material while other people are talking, which is a, an interesting strategy. Lots of people use it. But um, here it's just that little bit more disorienting if you're not that steeped in the lore of Grace Jones. And I knew next to nothing about where she came from, so it was fascinating seeing all of that Jamaican uh, footage and getting to see something of the culture that spawned her. 
Um, but it's still quite thin on a lot of biographical detail. If you're yeah. looking for that sort of biopic, this ain't it. I'm mm. a big fan of um, music documentaries. Like, I really like them. And I'm also a big Grace Jones fan. Um, I'm very regretful that I didn't go and see her the other week. Yeah, I know, Emma, too. you did. Like, While I'm you still guys, kicking my ass. While you that. guys were slaving and over hot mics, I we was at here. Grace Jones with Carl Chapman, <laughs> who's currently behind the panel at the moment. Um, so I'm still kicking my ass over that. And this kind of has made me continue to do that. But... I didn't I didn't love it as a music doco. I kind of I did feel that it was quite isolating for some reason and like I said I do consider myself to be a Grace Jones fan, but I I felt isolated from it. I did love seeing her interact with her family. Like you were saying Cerise, I just um learning that about her background was wonderful. But apart from that, it it just, yeah, it was a little lacklustre, I think. I uh, I found it really interesting the way that um you know, that she is so uh, open to exposing herself in a number of ways, yet we never really get to know her, even to take, even to invite us in to meet her family and to hear about her background. She is someone who still remains an enigma and that's the mm. amazing thing about her. The, even, even to listen to her vocally seemingly change from, like when she was talking to Sly and Robbie especially, she she gets this very strong Jamaican accent going, but then at other times she will sound English and then mm. at another time she will sound American and then she will just drop into fluent French. Um, like there's no <laughs> no problem with, you know. But even seeing her interact with her grandchild, there was still, it seemed, some sort of barrier that's been put up probably because a camera is there and she does want to remain an enigma, but there was definitely some sort of, yeah, a barrier that she's yeah, putting up. Yeah, did you feel, because yep. I felt that, I thought, she has this amazing way of being able to be naturalistic while obviously being very much aware that there's a camera there. There was one moment uh, when uh, she was talking to one of her, I, I guess, collaborators. I forget his name. Um, and there were other people walking around in the background really conscious that there was a camera. So they've set up this... Um, really intimate conversation, but there are so many moments where you, you kind of know there's a performance taking place for the camera. Mm. Mm, yeah, and I think that uh, it really came out with her the inclusion of her son in the film because he seemed to be. I just got this feeling that when when they went to the the family home in Jamaica, and I do really love what Sophie Fines did with the atmosphere of capturing. Jamaica as an atmosphere and um, those beautiful scenic shots as well and the just the travelling through Jamaica, Jamaican roads in a car. But her son seemed to take a, and probably what he has to do with a mother like that, seems to take a very back background role mm. and he sat there at the dinner party and it almost seemed like he didn't know the people there even though they were family. So I'm, I'm not even sure how much... He did know I, how often Grace Jones goes back there. It, it almost seemed a little. That did seem a little, little staged. Mm. But obviously, he's he's a musician himself. He does actually play in her band, and he was here in Melbourne. He was um, the percussionist in her band. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, oh, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also her brother Chris, who I believe is her twin brother, who did feature a little bit in the documentary as well. And they talked about the family dynamic, the way they banded together against the violence. Of the family, um, 
mainly the patriarch of the family was um, quite a harsh religious disciplinarian that um, Grace and Chris banded together. They were the the front that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, supported each other during, um, during those times of stress in the family. The concert shots were incredible, so beautifully shot, and that real stark contrast between Jamaica and those concerts. And I really loved how when it transitioned from a, a concert um, performance to Jamaica, the the sound of her song still carried over the image. Mm. And I really loved that where there was this blend of Jamaica and her performances. Mm. Well, it did something that is so welcome in music documentaries is that played it played songs in full. Uh, live yes. so, uh, um, performances without suddenly cutting away just when you're really getting into it and it's recorded beautifully. Mm. Um, I was. Uh, the, the, they showed the, the hula hooping of Slave to the Rhythm, which was she did live. She actually hula hooped for the whole song, which um, I don't know whether I could hula hoop for a whole song. I couldn't do one hula hoop. I know, no, let, let alone <laughs> sing sing along with it. I mean, it's rhythmically different. Um, it's physically taxing. And also Slave to the Rhythm came towards the end of the show. Mm-hmm. So she's actually done uh, an endurance concert before that mm-hmm. and somehow manages to stand up there. And uh, she, she seemed incredibly <laughs> disappointed in the film in the taxi ride that Paris was asleep, that nowhere seemed to be able to keep a pace with her. I know. I know. Oh, that, inc- that incredible <laughs> scene where <laughs> she sung Levion Rose on yes. <laughs> with the, the, the boudoir. She was this is tacky with the girls in their pink boudoir outfits, and she was she said, "Don't you have male dancers? I feel like I'm the madam of this of a brothel. Of this brothel. Yeah. A lesbian madam of a brothel. Yeah, yes. <laughs> right. Oh, that was great. Yeah, but I really loved in that moment that. I mean, she could have easily have chucked a diva tantrum and fired all of those uh, those dancers, but she didn't. So she was concerned that they'd be upset with her. She was genuinely concerned for their yeah. well-being and their, you know, being employed. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And was that, I think, that white hat that she has on it, is that the same hat that she had um, when she sung with Pavarotti and she walked out on stage and everyone laughed at her? <laughs> Do you remember back in the 80s? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm I can't sure say that. that, that Are you sure that even happened? It so, did. That sounds like a dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You wanted Maybe that to happen, happen, did you? I, I, I swear she walked out with Pavarotti and people laughed at her there and was, she had that same hat on. There was this thing. But maybe I did This theme up. about the hats and she's <laughs> always had this incredible thing going with hats. I remember just recently um, the classic Countdown series that they've been rolling out on ABC TV. They had um, Grace Jones doing Slave to the Rhythm where she kind of was like sort of crouched and flapping her wings like a large seabird and she had an entire a hat mask arrangement on where you could kind of just see it was sort of striped it had sort of transparent stripes through it and you could kind of see her her face through it but even in this documentary when she arrives to see her family she brings these enormous hats <laughs> as gifts for the family. That Ka- Carl, who's panelling, is just now showing everyone that I didn't dream it. You're right. You, you are right. Um, Carl is showing us this incredible hat that she wore with Pavarotti. But see, I like 
Grace because she, she commits to it. Doesn't yeah. matter that people laughed. She committed to it. Likewise, that whole relationship with Dolph Lundgren, which isn't mentioned at all in this documentary. Oh, I, that's one of my favourite <laughs> things about Grace Jones. Is her, he was her bodyguard. Oh, and where then, was Dolph? And the, both the two of them are like the literally the, the ebony and ivory <laughs> of the same imagine? physical match. You Stuart know? just looks bewildered. <laughs> I have no idea who Dolph is. <laughs> Uh, a chiselled, um, gormless-looking actor of... Uh, was he Scandinavian extraction? Yes, 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 yes. He was uh, the enemy of Rocky in one of the Rocky yes. films. Rocky, oh, yes. Rocky yeah. number three. Yeah, and a very, very exaggerated physical yeah. form, mm, as yeah. Grace yeah. was, in, you know, she still is, I mean, yeah. really. But um, the, the hats, the, I have to go back to the hats. So she gave those <laughs> hats that were kind of like... There was this sort of suggestion because um, they wore them to... Ch- her mother wore it to church, this hat, and that the fact that the congregation, all the elder women of the congregation would wear these really huge over-the-top hats and that this idea that she took that and has somehow taken that from her childhood and incorporate the, incorporated that into her, her stage show. So it was one of the nice little... Um, Nice little ways you could chart where her um, her actual beginnings had informed what she was as a um, as a a performer a performer, which is in the title Bloodlight and Bammy. Bammy being a bread, I believe, some mm. sort of uh, Jamaican bread. Yeah. yeah. Well, Grace Jones' Bloodlight and Bammy is on limited release at the Piverton. Is that Pivotonian. Pivotonian, sorry, it's in Geelong. It's in Geelong. So represent Geelong Independent yep. Theatre in Geelong. May it um, thrive. Go it and see it. Might <laughs> also be getting another very limited release here, depending on um, if audiences want it. So demand it. Go and see it at uh, Lido. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Next up, we're discussing Marco Di Fiolis, documentary about Serbian performance artist Marina Abramovic called Marina Abramovic in Brazil, The Space in Between. So this documentary follows Abramovic through Brazil in search of a personal and healing and artistic inspiration, experiencing sacred rituals and revealing her creative process. And to anyone listening that speaks Portuguese, my apologies because I am about to butcher your language something shocking, I think. But bear with me while I get through this. Go, Sally! Okay, give it a go. All right. So the root is compromised of of poignant encounters with healers and sages from the Brazilian countryside, exploring the limits between art and spirituality. The The film features healing sessions with the medium John of God in Obey de Inaya, herb healers in Chap a Dos Verdiras, <laughs> spiritual rituals at uh, Vale do Um in Brasilia, <laughs> this, and um, the strength of religious um, sync to. Uh, sing, I've, I've lost it now. <laughs> You're doing well. You go, girl. (laughs) (laughs) So the external trip triggers Marina in a profound introspective journey through memories, pain and past experiences. A mixture between a road movie and a spiritual thriller, the documentary brings an unprecedented approach of the intimate creative process 
of one of the most important artists of our time. So what do we think about this one? One of the most important or one of the most self-important? Discuss. <laughs> Discuss. Yeah, I know. <laughs> She's actually managed to prove quite a divisive figure, I've found, amongst um, artist pals. Um, Because she's become such a celebrity, uh, ever since the MoMA uh, retrospective she was granted, where she also performed her The Artist is Present uh, performance art endurance test, uh, where I think over the course of 75 days, six out of every seven days, she just stared at people and they stared back and often melted and many claimed that they had religious experiences. Uh, I think from that, I mean, the, the, this film documents what she's been up to since then and she she is our guide on this journey. It's not, it's not a, a film about her. It's sort of a film by her, even though she doesn't get the directorial credit. I mean, she's absolutely the guiding force of this film. There could hardly be any doubt about that, I should think. And... Um, so she's at an impasse. She goes, what, what do I do after I've had my show-stopping MoMA retrospective? Um, what, what can I do to, to take my art to the next place? Uh, spirituality is an obvious um, uh, direction to, to investigate for any artist, I suppose, anyway, but especially someone who, hard to believe, is in this case she's in her early 70s now, Again, like Grace Jones, you'd never believe it, seeing how vital this woman is. But uh, I think there's something almost a little bit tacky, actually, about a spiritual journey of this nature through South America by someone who's done tremendously well in the Western world, even if they're not actually of the West originally. She's from a a very brutal upbringing in Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia. Um, She's seen some incredibly traumatic things in her youth, uh, it's all informed who she is, but she's in a pretty good place circa uh, the 2010s, and yet here she is going off on um, you know, what could easily have been a backpacker's tour of, of Brazil, <laughs> yeah. going from one uh, shaman to another and inevitably it, taking part in a, a hallucinogenic drug experience uh, under some guidance perhaps. But it, it, I'm trying not to be too cynical because I like to think that... Um, uh, art and spirituality should intersect and sh- uh, she's a, a veteran artist and yes she should be constantly questioning her place in the cosmos and all of our place in it but i don't know i feel a little uh, little so you didn't did you enjoy, unconvinced you're not you didn't enjoy it well i'm not saying i didn't enjoy the film because okay. I mean, it's a fascinating mm. i saw a lot of scenes and rituals that i haven't seen before and where, where art intersects with ritual i think is always interesting because so much artistic practice is ritualistic and obsessive and repetitive as people hone what it is they're doing and repeat it and variations upon themes, whether it's music or the visual arts, plastic arts, what have you. But um, so it was quite I, minimal, the artistic output of it, though, didn't did oh, Well, that's the, until we get to the exhibition at the, the end, which end. actually yeah. looks incredibly new agey. And, yeah. um, you know, I yeah. didn't really draw a lot from I thought that. the same thing because I associate her with being somebody that's very extreme and I ex- associate her with extremes. And I found this to be very watered down, apart from the um, the finale, which is very new agey. Like, completely agree on that front. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. Um, I think because of her reverence, she gets access to these uh, spiritual leaders, um, these shamans that I don't. I think many documentarians probably wouldn't get that ac- access to. Um, I liked a lot of the the still imagery in the film. I um, it kind of reminded me of uh, Twenty Four Frames by Abbas Kiriostami, um, and I really loved those moments with the waterfall and when she's in the field. 
And there were some genuinely funny moments in the film as well when she eats the onion. Yeah, she did show a sense <laughs> of humour. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> She did a Tony Abbott. And I, that was where I really loved it because she's just, there is kind of a self-importance to her. And I love the moments where she just kind of broke that shield and, and sort of was very genuine in front of the camera. Um, yeah. Mm. A bit short as well. I find, I find her to be slightly terrifying <laughs> personally. And I thought it was interesting the way this opened. And she basically said that she's an alien. Uh, that was part of the opening expository. And then she went into this re- quite remarkable sequence with John of God where I, I feel like I, I see a lot of quite confronting cinema, but this was stuff that I could not watch. I couldn't um, watch it. Especially this man who is a, a, a faith healer, more practically oriented than the usual faith healer who um, says he's not a doctor yet was willing to perform surgery on people in front of, without anaesthetic in front of others and that was captured on camera. And he I just found it quite closes, alarming, yeah. I must admit. And he just closes his eyes and just kind of dives right in there with the knife and it's, yeah. Well, it's, the scene involving the eyeball. The that eyeball. Was and yeah. that has so many... Uh, Precursors in film history. We're so used yes. to the eye being imperiled in horror films. But uh, that's theatre. Uh, that <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, and this was real. So that, that actually was absolutely extraordinary to behold. I could scarcely bring myself to watch it as well, but I also had to know was he actually going to do what I thought he was going to do? So I did watch nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, she, there is still a, a genuine ferocity to her that she is willing to just unblinkingly bear witness to such things and, uh, and then kindly share them with us. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I feel I feel very ambivalent about this film, even though there is some extraordinary imagery throughout yeah. it. Yeah, it was interesting the way that the people that were having that surgery performed <laughs> on them reacted. Like there wasn't a lot of reaction from them. No, they were very calm and, and yeah, yeah, it mm. was. Um, I found that quite extraordinary. A, a lot of the well, there's, a, there's there are a lot of moments that are just watching her in some sort of transcendental meditation state, which um, obviously she has this amazing power of the mind, power over her mind and body to be able to do that artwork where she did sit for so many hours and have people just stare at her um, shows an incredible force as well. But I did think that it worked quite nicely with that idea of introspection and trying to externalise introspection. I did, and she they kind of tackled that a little bit in it in terms of the artistic imagery that was, you know, the output of what she was doing. And she does have this incredible fortitude. I mean, it's it's quite amazing. And um, just the, the, the same way that Grace Jones was happy to be incredibly exposed in front of the camera, so is she, you know. And, um, you know, they they seem to be able to be completely vulnerable, even to the the idea that, you know, and it was slightly farcical, but when she actually had to crack an egg, not met- metaphorically, but she actually had to try and crack this egg, which was meant to be carrying all her burdens and she couldn't, she couldn't crack it. this yeah. egg. That's <laughs> quite incredible. Yeah, and she actually had a little meltdown. At yeah, that yeah point. she did. She yeah. did. Yeah, I did even feel for her, I have to say, <laughs> at that moment. Oh, how frustrating that would have been. <laughs> All right, well, Marina Abramovich in Brazil, The Space in Between is on limited release at ACME. It's screening on March 30th, March 31st and April 1st. 
up this evening we are going to be looking at one that I think that we're all pretty excited to talk about which is Bombshell, the Hedy Lamarr story, directed by Alexandra Dean. Hollywood star Hedy Lamarr was known as the world's most beautiful woman. Snow White and Catwoman were both based on her iconic look. However, her asserting looks and glamorous life stood in the way of her being given credit for what she deserved as an ingenious inventor whose pioneering work helped revolutionise modern communication. Mislabeled as just another pretty face, Hedy's true legacy is that of a technological trailblazer. She was an Austrian Jewish immigrant who gave in who invented a covert communication system to try and help defeat the Nazis and then gave her patent to the Navy but was ignored and told to sell kisses for war bonds instead. It was only towards the very end of her life that tech pioneers discovered her concept, which is now used as the basis for secure Wi-Fi, GPS and Bluetooth. Hetty never um, publicly talked about her life as an inventor and so her family thought her story died when she did. But in 2016, director Alexandra Dean um, unearthed four never-before-heard audio tapes of Hetty speaking on the record about her incredible life. Combining this, new, uh, this newly discovered interview with intimate reflections from her children and her closest friends and admirers, including the likes of Mel Brooks, Bombshell finally gives Hedy Lamarr the chance to tell her own story. Mm. And how important were those audio um, those audio tapes that were unearthed? I'm not sure, and maybe someone can enlighten me as to whether they were uh, unearthed before the documentary was made or uh, or or as part of the process. But um, they seem to add so much to this this film um, in the way that I that when and we covered on the the show last year I did with Cerise I am not your Negro the James Baldwin documentary where um, they used uh, the uh, un- incomplete manuscript of um, something that he was writing as the the backbone of the documentary and this really felt that her audio tapes were the backbone and it kind of co- pr- provided a lot of um, colour to what was more essentially out of the three docos that we're talking about tonight, uh, the more straightforward documentary or more straightforward in documentary style anyway. And I think that recording is used quite smartly throughout the film. It begins with Hedy Lamarr saying that she's always wanted to tell her story in her own words. And through this recording, uh, I, I guess um, Alexandra Dean allows um, her to actually do that now. Mm. Well, fortunately, an awful lot of her life uh, had been well documented. There was, of course, being a major Hollywood star, there was a huge amount of footage of that still extant. And then having been a star in Europe beforehand too, there's still quite a lot of very good quality footage, including of the film that first made her notorious long before she became to Hollywood and was then told to never be naked again, seemingly, or some sort of <laughs> dictate from, like that from uh, Louis Mayer, um, head of, one of the heads of MGM. Um, but her whole story is just so fascinating. Um, I mean, this would, there'd be a great dramatisation in this as well. If, I just don't know who you'd cast as her. 
it's a lot to live up to, not least as part of the story is the sad decline as well of somebody uh, spat out by the studio system. And it's horrifying what happened to so many of the Hollywood greats. As, uh, as pe People often, until more recent times, never gave this a second thought, but the, the Marlene Dietrichs, uh, the Louise Brookses, all these people who are such icons of cinema in their heyday ended up in ignominy and, and, and just uh, abandoned, but not even just actually abandoned, on the way out of the studio system. They were administered drugs that um, we, we now know to have been of the nature of methamphetamine and <laughs> others, extremely strong little pep pills that... Um, basically led to some extremely erratic behaviour and and mm. um, dis, not just dissolute life, but actually just breakdowns and, um, in this case, plastic surgery disasters too. And it's just, it's so sad. It mm. was interesting her input though on <laughs> changing the way plastic, plastic surgery <laughs> works. That was I mean, fascinating. What, a, what an amazing woman. I mean, really... The fact that she would instruct her own doctor on uh, where to cut her, the idea of cutting behind the ear and I think she got her bingo wings done so she, you know, said, you know, around the folds of the the elbow and all this sort of thing to hide the scars and that that has become common practice. I mean, unfortunately for Hetty, I don't think that they necessarily perfected it. She started to look quite scary in the end and, and just proved herself to be another victim of the system by that, regardless of her incredible intellect, that she was, you know, the, the first generation that actually got to see themselves really age through photography, motion picture or otherwise, still photography. Um, and no doubt that obviously played on her, that all her validity came from the fact that she was a beautiful woman. Um, and even though she had so much to, to give in other ways that this pressure for her not to be to appear smart was what she was making a living out of and we cannot underestimate how huge that has been for so many actresses um, in Hollywood uh, just listening to a lot of stuff about Jane Mansfield um, recently and Sally and I are involved in something with that um, that that she was not even allowed to be seen as dating one man because that would be contrary to the image that she was projecting projecting on screen. So the idea that you had to be in real life what you were on screen, which is something that people now, you know, realise you're acting. Marriages and all that yeah, kind of thing exactly. for a long, long time. Yeah. A number of things about their sexuality. So the idea is that then people couldn't believe you on screen even though you're acting and isn't that part of it. But anyway... It's a really timely documentary for that, I think, because um, there's, there's one moment in the film where she talks about being labelled a difficult woman because she refuses to play along with their rules and she starts to sort of um, uh, sort of challenge a lot of their kind of um, dictates. Um, and I think sort of a lot of that is happening today, mm -hmm. I think, with, sort of with the Me Too campaign and the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Um, there's sort of really interesting parallels there, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, learning that she went out and made independent productions at a time when that's, this was... I mean, no one really did that, let alone mm. uh, a woman. Is just It was astonishing. Mm. Because Munro did that with, what, The Prince and the Showgirl, but that was much 
later than that, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't have that time frame. When was I that? Olivier. Uh, late fifties. Much, much yeah. later. That was the late fifties. Yeah. yeah, this was mm. late forties, just after yeah. the after Samson and Delilah, mm-hmm. and she thought to make something actually on a similar scale as a CC. Cecil Beta Mill production. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, um, the ambition of the woman is astonishing and amazing. Well, one thing I, I wish this film had brought a bit more to uh, would have been a bit of a queer and feminist lens. There's a passing mention that she had female lovers as well, but it's only very passing. Instead, we hear about the string of husbands and the various occasional scandals around uh, aspects of her public persona and her behaviour, but we, we didn't hear much about that which I would have liked to have known more of, but also actually we didn't, I don't think we got anything oh, about that. There was that, just did we? one mention that Slight she mention. had lovers of of, uh, of female and male. I didn't so pick no. up on that. Yeah. There was yeah. one photo that of was her very kissing subtle. a woman. Yeah, it was very at a party. Oh, and, and moving right along. Yeah. And another thing is that so much we hear in this film about the great scandal of the film that made her in Europe ecstasy. Um, a Czech director, Gustav Makati, who's not even mentioned in the film. Mm. Um, we, we, we get the sense that, yes, she manip- uh, he manipulated things in order to get a certain sort of performance out of her that then became a scandal but also her springboard to great fame and success. But we, we don't hear anything about how, how different the sensibilities were in Europe at that time compared to stuffy old America just as the Hays Code was kicking in in mm-hmm. the early 30s. And we also don't hear anything about how important a certain scene in that film is where we see for the first time in a major motion picture, uh, female pleasure front and centre on, on screen. Yeah. In close-up, a woman actually enjoying sex. and Rather than enduring. Enduring, exactly. <laughs> and, and instead this documentary goes to a little, a little bit of trouble to say, yes, this was done in a certain way and the director threatened to put pins... Um, up through the sofa she was lying on if she didn't respond in a certain way and then it was cut to put a man in there who was never there as if, yeah. wow, d- who, who could get their head around the fact that there was movie making and illusionism involved in, <laughs> and, and editing, <laughs> montage, trickery, all the black oh, arts. radical. That's yeah, crazy. <laughs> but it completely overlooked the fact that that was actually a major moment in film history that mm. a woman enjoyed sex uh, on on the big screen and enjoy being naked in a natural environment. She frolics around. Um, she suddenly actually becomes aware that she's being um, that, that there are voyeurs witnessing her. So that actually says an awful lot about spectatorship as well. It's a really pivotal moment in film history, and uh, this this documentary just skirts right over it. But I suppose it does want to focus on the other reason we want to celebrate her career: the stuff that she was actually had real agency of, and that's her inventions. Mm. And um, Without our inventions, I don't think this would be what we're doing right now. Probably wouldn't be broadcast digitally across uh, <laughs> the universe as it is right Thanks, this Hattie. moment. Yes, yeah, fre- but frequency hopping. Yeah, frequency hopping, but mm. which I thought was really interesting that she teamed up with uh, George Anthul. I, I probably have pronounced his name Antile. totally incorrect. Antile, mm-hmm. there you go, <laughs> completely wrong. Who um, I believe used pianola, um, the pianola to get the to actually do the the frequency hopping or achieve that, um, bring her concept to life, and um, sadly. They did take that to um, the Navy who said they weren't going to use it but eventually did use it and by the time she found out she didn't get to reap from what was they estimate now worth $37 billion. So, yeah, I know. It's, 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 really, it's really sad. She was a woman before her time and that is the, the frustrating, 
frustrating thing. I think we've actually spoken about three women who are very, very much on tonight's show, very much ahead of their time, although luckily... Grace Jones and Marina Abramovich have managed to punch a hole <laughs> through everything and be noticed for who they are. <laughs> I must say, the when the film explains all of these technical concepts that she's inventing, it's explained very well in sort of it, through the animations. Um, I like them too. Yeah, yeah I felt they were that, that helped yeah. me, yeah. Yeah. including oh, incorporating a, a Google yep. Doodle. Yes. Yeah, celebrated. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really great too. Mm. Yeah, it's probably the most conventional documentary of mm. the three that we've spoken about today, but it's possibly the most satisfying in a way. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely mm. my favourite of these three docos that we looked at was this one for mm. sure. But they're all inspirational in their exactly. own way. Exactly, mm. yeah, for sure. And that scene when she escapes her abusive Viennese husband... Mm. Um, by pretending to be the maid. I had no idea about that. Yeah, story. so, so yeah. many great scenes here in a dramatisation that so hasn't incredible. yet been filmed. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the story is incredible. You know, the husband, um, the first husband was making munitions, some of them sold to the fascists. Of course, later she tried to help the, the fight against the Nazis. I mean, all of this, it's such. So much espionage and intrigue, and it's, mm. uh, it's a cracking yarn that um, I just don't how know who to cast. How is that not a film? Yeah, like, I know. How has that not been dramatised? It has to happen. At does it some seem stage. too far fetched? Is that the problem? <laughs> it does have to. I think that, yeah, isn't it amazing though? This is the thing. I think there's a lot of complaints about how many war, you know, stories from the the, the big wars of the 20th century, how many stories can we have yet? They're constantly, we're just uncovering more and more interesting stories. Um, even the way, you know, that, like you said, her escape, she literally escaped. She escaped at the right time. I mean... On a bike. She could have been a complete <laughs> victim of, and we would never have known her. She would have been sort of relegated to this one, one film. This one uh, scandal. This one scandal, in European scandal, but... Um, it's actually a really beautiful film. They keep calling yes. it a dirty movie in this yes, documentary. And it's an outrage. I it's know. actually a really beautiful That's film. That's hilarious. I have to say, I was quite surprised that they, they said that and they just talked about it in the way that she completely disowned it. Just Americans can be so puritanical. Yeah, yes, yes, How old was she when she did ecstasy? She was very young. 17 she? or so. She's yeah. very young. Mm. Yeah, very young. But even in the, the terms of the escape where she decided to, um, I think with when she met Louis B. Mayer and I think he offered her something like $150 a week as part of a contract and she turned it down and she orchestrated this um, this kind of... Uh, uh, were they on a boat or something? Mm, this yeah. th Where she would parade past him every night and that... That basically she set up. She Made me used, think of gentlemen prefer blondes. Yeah, she used her <laughs> beauty. Like it reminded me of Jane's Jane Mansfield. Yeah. Like smart women that went, okay, all right, I've got this. I've got to. I've got to work it. Mm -hmm. But knew how to therefore work it to their advantage. And she ended up getting a contract that was worth five hundred dollars a week, which is, which yeah, is pretty amazing. She's mm -hmm. doing better than people on uh, social security here in Australia. <laughs> <At the moment>. Yeah. <laughs> All well. right. Um, so you have been listening to Palato's Cave on 3RRR with Cerise Howard, Stuart Richards, Emma Westwood and Sally Christie. Um, before we go, a little bit of exciting news that we have been nominated for an Australian Podcast Award. Woohoo! Woo. Yay! <laughs> and a huge thanks to Faith Everard for getting that all together. So if you want to show us some love, go to australianpodcastawards.com. 
Um, and, of course, you can subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or wherever else you like to find your podcasts. Again, a huge thanks to Faith Everard for producing Plato's Cave and Carl Chapman for panelling the show. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.